Well, it's a long time ago uh, now, quite a long time actually, but uh, Margie and I were invited to uh, a friend's, a good friend's 21st birthday party. And on the invitation it said, fancy dress, bush dance. So we knew that when we got there we wouldn't know very many other people, only a couple of them really, but we love dressing up. We still do, especially Margie. But uh, so anyway, we, we, we worked out our costumes and uh, we got our costumes organised. I was a convict. I looked fantastic. Uh, the whole calico gear, cro- you know, arrows pointed on me, torn clothes. Excellent. And uh, we got to the party, which was a little bit away from us, got to the party, walked into the hall, only to discover that no one else was dressed up. <laughs> Not even our friend whose party it was dressed up. I've almost forgiven her. (laughs) We expected costumes, okay? We expected to walk in to see all these bush dance costumes. Our expectation was fancy dressed people. And I've got to tell you, especially for me, our expectations were shattered. (laughs) They were completely wrong and we felt and I looked foolish. And that's the way it goes, isn't it? Expectations, when they're right, very helpful. But when they're wrong, trouble. They're always like that, expectations, aren't they? It's amazing how much your expectations of something shape the way you think and the way you act. And if your expectations are accurate, if they're realistic, it's all good. But if your expectations are wrong, then it's all bad. So when I get the chance to help people to prepare to get married, one of the really important things, I think, to do is to help them have realistic expectations of what's ahead, of the joys and the challenges ahead. Uh, When you have a job, you know it, don't you? If you have wrong expectations in your job, it just leads to frustration and disappointment. When you walk in the kitchen and you smell that meal cooking, you have an expectation, don't you, whether good or bad, of what it's going to taste like. Smoke's always a bad sign. (laughs) Expectations are big things. It's really important to have realistic expectations because what you expect shapes what you think and what you do. And I've got to tell you, there are a lot of expectations on display in our passage tonight. Like I said, we're beginning this six-week series uh, through Matthew chapters 11 to 13. If you have a really good memory, you may recall that we spent some time a little way back looking at chapters 8, 9 and 10. We're just really picking up the story tonight. If you're interested, you may be able to track those earlier talks down on the webpage. But what we're going to be confronted with in this series is Jesus the King. Jesus, the king of the kingdom of heaven, a powerful king we'll see, a gentle king, a warrior king, a surprising king. In fact, it may well be, you know, that your expectations of what we'll learn about Jesus in this series may be surprised. I don't think they'll be disappointed. I think they'll be surpassed. But Jesus has always surprised. He's always surprised. And we see that really clearly in our passage Tonight, So it'd be great to have your Bible open, if you can, at Matthew chapter 11, uh, what Mark read for us. There's an outline of the talk on the inside of the bulletin, and I'm going to pray now and just ask God to help us to understand his word and to respond rightly to it. You might like to join me. Let's do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it's a great privilege, a really great privilege to come before your word. Guess, Father, there's lots of things in our minds at the moment. Maybe we're thinking about things to come Maybe we're thinking about stuff that's happened today. Um, I don't know. Father, we just want to pray that somehow you might help us to push that to one side so that we can hear you clearly tonight. 
Because as we think about it, Father, to get to hear you speak to us is an incredible thing. So we want to make the most of it. I want to pray that you'd help me to speak only what's true. We want to be excited, Father, about things that we ought to be excited about. We want to be convicted about things we ought to be convicted about. If there's things we're thinking, Father, that are wrong, we want to get rid of them. And we need your help to do all of that. So we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Point one on your outline. And I don't know if you noticed, but our passage tonight is actually dominated by a question. A question. It's a question driven by expectations. Uh, It's a big question that's asked by John the Baptist. It's not a philosophical question, okay? It's not a question of vague interest. It's a desperate question asked by a desperate man in desperate circumstances. You can see the question in verse 2. Have a look at it with me. Verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Okay, John here is John the Baptist, the fiery figure that we get introduced to back in chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel. This is the John okay, who was preaching in the desert. This is the John who wore, who, who wore clothes made of camel hair. This is the John who had a leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and honey. This is the John who in his ministry called people to repent, to turn around and turn back to God. This is the John who called on the nation of Israel to get ready, to get ready for the imminent arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king. This is the John who called people to get ready for the one who was coming, who was promised by the prophets, the Christ who would come, the judge, the deliverer, the one who would bring in the kingdom of heaven and destroy all evil and all opposition. John was a fiery preacher with an even more fiery message and he even baptized people to symbolize their repentance before the coming king, to symbolize them cleansing themselves to get ready For the king, here's a sample. Let me read you a sample of his fiery, spirit-inspired preaching from Matthew chapter 3. He said this, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He'll clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. A fiery prophet, a fiery message of judgment. And of course, John had the opportunity to baptize even Jesus before Jesus began his public ministry. But you know, after all of that, John's preaching, his fiery preaching, got him into trouble even with the local king, King Herod. John had the audacity the courage to preach even against Herod and Herod's lifestyle. And so Herod had John arrested and thrown into prison. He's a desperate man. He's in a desperate situation. And here in our passage, he asks Jesus a desperate question. Verse 2, verse 3, sorry. Are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? See, John's heard what Jesus was doing. And obviously, his expectations of Jesus have been disappointed. Maybe John's thinking, where's the fire? Where's the judgment? 
the Romans are the obvious opponents of God's kingdom, why hasn't Jesus taken on the Romans? Why does Jesus befriend tax collectors and sinners? John knows what Jesus has been doing and it's not what he expected of the Christ, the promised king. And so he wants to know, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? It's a desperate question. You see, John, he's been laboring for God for years in the desert, eating locusts and honey, wearing camel hair, making more enemies than friends. He had all of his hopes pinned on God's promise to send his king, the Messiah, the Christ. And for John, those hopes had centered on Jesus, and here he's disappointed. He's disappointed. Matthew, of course, if you look carefully in verse 2, he doesn't want us to miss the fact that John's mistaken. Matthew calls Jesus the Christ there in verse 2. In fact, Matthew's been identifying Jesus as the Christ all the way through his gospel from the very first sentence way back in chapter 1 and verse 1. But remember, Matthew wrote this gospel with the benefit of hindsight. Matthew wrote his gospel after the death and resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Matthew wrote this gospel with the leadership and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. John's question here, though, it's in the midst of all the action. And the action was not what he was expecting. Maybe there's not enough action for John. Are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? Point two. In verse four, John answers, uh, sorry, Jesus answers John's question. Not with a rebuke, far from it. But with a reminder, have a look at verse 4 with me. Uh, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. I wonder if you look at that again just for yourself, I wonder if you can see something interesting about Jesus' reply. Because John, what was he troubled about? He was troubled about what Jesus is doing. And what does Jesus tell him? He tells him what he's been doing. It's interesting, isn't it? What's going on? Well, Jesus' words are very carefully chosen. Jesus' words here are actually shaped by the promises of the Messiah, the Christ, in the Old Testament. Jesus, if you like, is filling out John's expectation of the Messiah and reminding him of the promises of the Messiah that maybe John was neglecting. Jesus there is drawing mainly on the prophecy of Isaiah in the Old Testament, a really big book in the Old Testament, and it has great promises of the Christ to come. For example, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1, we can read this, you can look it up later, I think I've written the reference down on your outline. We read this, Isaiah 61 verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Back in Isaiah, that is the Christ who is speaking, the Messiah. And you see, Jesus now here in our passage wants John to know that what is happening is just what was promised to happen. In his ministry, the ministry of the Christ, the promised Messiah, the King, good news is being preached to the poor. In another place, in Isaiah's prophecy, uh, Isaiah promised that with the coming of the Christ, the eyes of the blind would be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. The lame would leap like a deer. The, the mute uh, tongue would shout for joy. In Isaiah 35, if you're interested, look at it later. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. It's a picture in Isaiah, okay, of restoration, forgiveness and recreation and salvation. And it's just what Jesus has been doing. 
can read chapters 1 to 10 for yourself to see it. In exact accord, okay, with the promises of God in the Old Testament, Jesus comes as more than a judge. He comes also as a saviour and he wants John to recognise that. He wants to comfort John that his ministry has not been in vain. He wants to give John the assurance in the words of verse 6. John, you you need to understand, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. It's a call to John in prison to stay faithful. Don't give up, John. Don't give up. Stay faithful. John's expectations, you see, they weren't wrong so much as not complete. John's expectations were surprised by the coming of the very one he had predicted. John's expectations were surprised by the very one he had prepared the way for. For the Messiah, you see, comes not only as a judge, but as a saviour. Which is great news. Before we think, though, too poorly of John, we need to recognise that Jesus honours him, incredibly, really, honours him in a way that would have surprised, I think, those who were listening See what happens next in our passage. John's John's disciples, they head off to uh, bring the good news to John that his ministry has not been in vain, take the answer of Jesus. And then Jesus turns to the crowd to talk about John to them. Have a look, pick it up in verse 7. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A, A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Well, yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus identifies John as the prophet who was prophesied to come. In another Old Testament prophet this time, this time the prophet Malachi in chapter 3 of his prophecy, the last book of our Old Testament, the Lord promises a day when he himself will arrive among his people. How incredible is that? A day when the Lord himself will come among his people. And it says in Malachi he will come to his temple like a refiner's fire. He'll judge his people. He will be cleansing sin from among them. It will be the day of the Lord. And in Malachi the Lord promises to send a messenger ahead of him, preparing the way for his arrival. And in Malachi, the messenger is identified as the prophet Elijah. The prophet Elijah. The prophet, remember, who was taken up in a fiery chariot. That prophet, according to Malachi, will be the one whom the Lord will send before the day of the Lord's coming. Imagine the expectation fueled by that that Elijah would come again. Elijah, the great prophet, remember, who called down fire from heaven on judgment on the prophets of Baal, who who stood toe-to-toe with the evil king Ahab, he would come and prepare the way for the Lord. And Jesus, okay, here in our passage says, you know what? That was John. Verse 14, he says, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. The one that people went out in the desert to see, he wasn't a reed swaying in the wind. He wasn't a king dressed in fine clothes. No, no, no. He was something far more. He was a prophet. He was more than a prophet. He was the promised prophet. He was the Elijah of Malachi 3 and 4. And you know what? I reckon as Jesus said that, the crowds would have thought, you're kidding. They were expecting Elijah, but they weren't expecting it to be John. The fact that Jesus had to spell it out suggests they didn't didn't get it. I think John would have been surprised. 
He dressed like Elijah, but I can't really find anywhere a suggestion that John thought of himself as the promised Elijah. But he was. He was a prophet. He was more than a prophet because he prepared the way for the Lord himself to come among his people. All the prophets of the Old Testament prepared the way for Jesus. But John, he was special, wasn't he? None of them were as close to the Lord coming as John. John saw Jesus, the Son of God, with his own eyes. He was literally able to point to Jesus with his finger and say, there he is. He prepared the way for the coming of the Lord in a way that none of the other prophets did. They couldn't have because of where they were in history. And so Jesus says in verse 11, can you see it? Verse 11, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, the greatest of the prophets. But you know, here's the thing. John's expectations were surprised. It's not that his expectations were wrong. It's just that they were incomplete. Jesus comes as the Christ who is both judge and saviour. The judgment, okay, that John was expecting, the fire of God's wrath against God's enemies, it would certainly come, okay? It would certainly come. But here is the incredible truth we need to remember. We need to grab onto. Here's the incredible truth. The judgment of God on sin that John was expecting would be first endured by the Christ himself. Did you catch that? The judgment of God that that John was rightly expecting would first be endured by the Christ himself in his death on the cross when he died in the place of sinners, when the wrath of God would burn against Jesus who became sin for his people so as to turn away the wrath of God from his people. Judgment fell, but it fell first on Jesus the Christ himself. And so you see, because of that, Jesus preaches good news to the poor, to the oppressed, to the humble. He brings healing, he brings restoration because he himself will bear the judgment of God on the sin of his people. And folks, don't mishear me, okay? There will be a final judgment. But it will be on the other side now of Jesus' death and resurrection. The final judgment of the Christ will come after the Christ has now made a way possible to be saved from his judgment. It's it's fantastic. The very Christ who will be the judge is the very Christ who makes a way possible to escape from his judgment and it is only by taking refuge in him. It is only by entrusting yourself to him. He is a surprising Christ, a wonderfully surprising Christ, who uses his authority and his power to save undeserving people, like tax collectors and sinners and people like us. And you know what, John, as great as he was in God's plan, he didn't get the chance to see all that unfold, you see, at least not in this life. For by the time we reach chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel, John is dead, beheaded, at the whim of Herod. And that's what Jesus refers to in verse 12. He says, forceful men seek to lay hold of the kingdom. They seek to oppose it. They seek to bring violence against it. But the kingdom advances. The arrest and the execution of John, the graves of the prophets, is just one example of forceful men laying hold of the kingdom. But there could be no greater example of that 
than the arrest and execution of the king himself. And you know what? If John had still been alive at the, end of the, at the end of Matthew's gospel, if John had still been alive when Jesus was arrested and executed, if John could have been there to see that, I reckon his question about the identity of Jesus would have been in, in, immeasurably louder and more desperate. How could it possibly be that the Christ would die? And yet, of course, there at that most surprising of moments, the death of the Christ was the moment in the advance of the kingdom where the Christ would open a way to be saved from his judgment by being judged himself. But of course, friends, our perspective on all these things is so much more privileged, isn't it, than John's perspective. We are in a much more privileged position. Through the witness of the apostles like Matthew, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he's revealing the truth of these things. We are able to see them with much greater clarity than John the Baptist could have. We are able to appreciate the glory and the greatness of Jesus with much more clarity. And that's why Jesus finishes his sentence in verse 11 the way he does. Can you see verse 11? He says, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What does he mean? Well, he means because of where we stand in salvation history, because we here even tonight can look back on all these great events because we can look back on them with the help of the scriptures and the Spirit's explanation. We are in a much more privileged situation than even John. John longed to know the truth of the things he was seeing and predicting. But we know that truth. That truth has been revealed to us. We are the ones on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. And even he, you see, who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater in that sense than John the Baptist. Because we can perceive even more clearly than him the greatness and the glory of Christ Jesus. But friends, I've got to tell you, with, with such privilege comes great responsibility. Because you know what? We still have expectations of Jesus, don't we? But you see, because of where we sit in salvation history, because of where we sit in the timeline, it's very, very important that our expectations are examined and assessed because wrong expectations always lead to wrong thinking and wrong doing and John's question was are you the one who is to come and we know that he was we know that Jesus was indeed the promised Christ we know that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of heaven a kingdom that has invaded this reality and will soon come in full with the return of the king and really you know the return of king Jesus that second coming of king Jesus Really, that will bring about all that John expected in his first coming. Judgment. The prophet Malachi that I talked about before, when he thought about the day of the Lord, he posed these questions. They're really important ones. He said, he asked, when the Lord comes, who can endure the day of his coming? When the Lord comes, who can stand when he appears? And we know the answer because of where we sit in salvation history, don't we? We know that the only ones who could stand are those who have sought refuge in the very Christ who judges. Only those who have come to Christ as their king and their saviour and pleaded for his mercy and begged to be brought to his kingdom, they're the only people who will be saved from his judgment. Who could stand when he comes back? Only those who have graciously received spiritual sights 
who have been healed of their sin, who have been cured of their disobedience, who have been raised from spiritually death, spiritual death, who have heard and believed the good news preached to them. And folks, that's many of us tonight, isn't it? That's why we glory in Jesus as our King. That's true, isn't it? That's why we love him when we give him our greatest of loyalties, for in him we have found cleansing and forgiveness and life. In our judge, we found a saviour. And so we're filled with thanksgiving that Jesus might have been a friend of tax collectors and sinners like us. It's incredible, but we're thankful for it. But folks, can I say, we need to understand the times we live in just like John had to. Our expectations have to be realistic. And it's, it's maybe an oversimplification, but I hope that you'll let me use it. It's worth reflecting on. Here it is, you ready? John expected judgment but was surprised by mercy can i suggest friends that where we sit now in salvation history in the timeline can i suggest that we expect mercy but may very well be surprised by judgment can i suggest that we are happy for christ jesus the christ to be the savior but may be surprised by him being the judge but a judge he is and judgment he'll bring. And we need to have realistic expectations because, let me tell you, that changes everything. It changes everything. And I need to say, look, if you're sitting here tonight and you are outside of the kingdom of heaven, if you're sitting here tonight, if you reflect honestly on it, you think, I am still outside the saving rule of Jesus. I'm so glad that you're here tonight. I really am. But I need to tell you carefully and, and, and graciously, you are in imminent, awful danger. For on your own, you see, you will not be able to stand when the king comes. On your own, you will not be able to endure the day of his coming. It will be a terrible day to be on the wrong side of Jesus, a day of wrath and judgment and condemnation. For those who are outside of the saving rule of Jesus, that day will be a day in which they will be consumed by his anger. So friends, I plead with you, really, I, I plead with you to come to Jesus. Next week, you know, we're going to be hearing these words from Jesus in the second half of chapter 11. If you glance down, you'll see it. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. It's there in verse 28. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. We're going to look at it next week, but I can't wait till next week to, tell, to pass it on to you. For, this, for Jesus may return before next Sunday comes. It is that imminent. It's that urgent. Please hear the call of Jesus and come to him. Submit to him. Seek refuge in him. And friends, I know that many of us have done that. We enjoy his mercy even now tonight. But can I gently suggest that so often we neglect his coming judgment? I know that's true. I know it's true that we, 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 we sort of neglect his coming judgment. I know that's true because if it wasn't true, if we truly grasped and expected Jesus to come again in judgment, our lives, can I suggest, would look so much different. So much different. If we expected that Jesus was coming again in judgment, we would be pouring our lives out into pointing people to him now. 
We'd be pouring our lives out in urging them to seek refuge in him, wouldn't we? Because if we expected Jesus to come back and we weren't doing that, we would be callous beyond belief. But folks, why is it that so many of us hardly have any friends who are not yet in the kingdom of heaven? How could that be? Why is it that we are not deliberately fostering friendships with people who are outside the kingdom of heaven? How could that be? Why is it that when we have an invitation event, a guest Sunday, a food for thought dinner, so many of us cannot think of anyone to invite? How could that be? Why is it that so little of our time and our thinking and our energy goes into sharing the good news of Jesus before it's too late? How could that be? We need to understand the times in which we live. We live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven has broken into our world. People are now entering it. People are now opposing it. But there is fast coming a day in which it will be too late to enter. A fearful day when all opposition will be wiped away. A fearful day to be on the wrong side of Jesus. And so we're missionaries, aren't we? Missionaries for Jesus where we work, where we live, where we go with our kids, where we shop, in our neighbourhood, in our city, in our land, in our world. We are missionaries for Jesus. Because if we're not, we are deluded. And our expectations are deluded. And whereas John's limited expectations could be excused, ours cannot. John's question, remember, are you the one who was to come? The answer is yes. We know that Jesus is the King of kings. And we know that having come once, he will come again. And the question is, do we have realistic expectations of his second coming? And you can tell that by what you do, what you think, and what you choose. May it be realistic. How about we pray? Father, we ask for your mercy and your forgiveness for being so sluggish in these things so often. I'm really praying for myself, Father, but I'm sure there are others who share my prayer in this room tonight. Father, please help us to understand that Jesus is both Saviour and Judge, your King, the Christ. We are so grateful, Father, that he has come once to open up a way to be rescued from his judgment. And Father, I really pray for anyone here tonight who is yet to be part of his kingdom. I pray that you'd help them to understand the truth and give them the courage they need, Father, to commit everything to Jesus. Father, for those of us who have received your mercy, Father, convince us, please, of the reality of Jesus' next coming as he comes as the judge. Father, shake us up. Father, we want to stop faffing around with these things. We want to actually act. We want to do things of substance. Please help us. Help us to leave behind our excuses, Father, 
and make a genuine difference for you in this place. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.